Amen. Let's all stand. God has given us another awesome, wonderful opportunity to enter into His presence this morning. How merciful and how gracious is our God to us today. He has given us life and breath and opportunity. Opportunity to choose Him today. To choose to serve Him. To demonstrate our love toward Him. Our thankfulness for all that He's done. Amen. Let's continue to remember those in prayer that we've been praying for. Our our loved ones. Several need healing. This city, this county. There are a lot of needs. There are always going to be a lot of needs in this world. But thank God that we have a Savior that loves us and that wants the very best for us and that can and will help us in our time of need. Amen. Let's go to Him in prayer today. Lord Jesus, You are such an awesome God. Your mercy and Your grace and Your compassion have overwhelmed us. They continually, like a deluge, come up against us. Hallelujah, Jesus. They overtake us. They chase us down and they overwhelm us. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. You are so wondrous. You are so glorious. You are so beautiful. You are so awesome. Hallelujah, Jesus. We seek Your face today. We seek to hear Your voice today. We are Your sheep. We will hear Your voice. We will listen only to You. We will follow after only You. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Because only You are worthy. Only You are worthy of our attention. Only You are worthy of our worship and our praise. Only You are worthy of our service. Hallelujah, Jesus. We laud and we magnify You. We heap glory and honor unto the Most High this morning. Hallelujah, Jesus. We do give glory and honor unto You. Our Lord Jesus, our merciful, wondrous Savior, bless Your people today. Minister to their every needs. Every need. And I pray, O God, that Your glorious name would be magnified, worshipped, lifted up in this place this morning. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Truth is a a uh, sometimes a fluid concept, maybe water soluble, in that when we receive truth, it has a tendency over time to become diluted. Now, truth itself, of course, is not water-soluble. Truth is truth, and it will remain truth whether anyone believes it or not, whether anyone subscribes to it or not, follows it or not. It's still true forever. But in our own lives, in our own minds, in, in uh, the idea of, of a body receiving truth, that the church in this dispensation is the repository of truth. The Word of God. It's interesting to me 
not in a good way, that that always seems to, that is what comes under attack. That is what seems to be lost first, is truth. Truth is always the, the first casualty, it seems, in our warfare. As we look through history, we had a perfect revelation of truth, of who God is, of, of what God desired before the fall. And then as mankind, we decided to follow our own ideas of right and wrong. And we rebelled and we sinned. I don't know what it is about us that desires something else other than God. Even before the fall, I'd like to say it's my sin nature. I'd like to say it's my old Adamic nature that causes me to, to hate the ways of God. But if we're perfectly honest with ourselves this morning, we have to realize that Adam chose that before sin. He chose to do his own thing before the fall. I don't know what it is about human beings that desire that, that think that we have it all figured out, that think that we know better than God, what's true and what's not. But whatever the reason, whatever the cause, we fell. And from that very moment, indeed even before that, the Bible teaches from the foundation of the world, Jesus was crucified. From the foundation of the world, God had it in His mind to save us, to deliver us from our own error, from our own mess, our own sin. I have looked at the life of Jesus from many different angles over the years, and I'm sure you have too. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing study, the life of Jesus, <clears throat> and certainly worthy of continuous study. But something that I haven't really looked at in detail, in depth, is the crucifixion event. I've always been thankful that he's been, he was crucified for me, that he hung on a cross in my place, that he paid the punishment of my sins himself, I was, and I will always be thankful for that. But in preparing for this lesson this morning, I, I was actually amazed at how much material we have of the actual crucifixion event itself, the events immediately preceding, the events immediately following after. And uh, I discovered that there was a thing. The, the seven last words, or the seven last phrases, or the seven last sentences of Jesus. I'd never heard that before. I'd never seen that before. But uh, apparently this, is, this, is, this has been a thing for hundreds of years. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. John 19, verses 16 through 18 says this. 
Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth unto a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. So here we see that they led Jesus to Golgotha, and they hung him on a cross and they crucified him. The Bible teaches us in Mark 15:25 that he was crucified at the third hour of the day, which in our vernacular would translate to around nine in the morning. We also see in Mark 15:34 that the crucifixion lasted until the ninth hour, which again translates to about 3 p.m. So approximately six hours. Our Savior hung a hung on a cross because of me. Because of you. I can't talk about the crucifixion without weeping. I apologize. I am so thankful. I am so thankful for the cross of Calvary. The recorded words of Jesus between the time He was crucified and the time He died are recorded not only in one specific Gospel, but they're recorded severally throughout. There is an order that this is typically presented in. It's an order of tradition. Uh, We're not exactly sure in which order they appeared. Uh, So just keep that in mind as we proceed. The first two and the seventh occur only in Luke. The third, fifth, and sixth only in John. And the fourth in both Matthew and Mark. The first phrase is, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. We find this recorded in Luke chapter 23, verses 34. Now, it was certainly in Jesus' nature to forgive. We understand that He is a merciful and a gracious God. Slow to anger and of great mercy. We also know (laughs) That the people weren't entirely ignorant, though, of what they were doing, were they? They understood, in some sense, they understood exactly what they were doing. They were crucifying an innocent man. Now, some of them did believe that he was a heretic calling himself equal to God. And that was, under the law, punishable by death. 
So in some sense, they did understand what they were doing. But in the larger context, I think that they were almost entirely ignorant of what was going on. Even Satan himself was ignorant of what was going on. The Bible says if he would have known what was going on, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was the worst mistake of his entire existence. Letting Jesus go to a cross and dying. So in that aspect, they were entirely ignorant of what was going on. That Jesus had to go to a cross to fulfill, at that time, 4,000 years of prophecy. 4,000 years of working with humans. 4,000 years of bringing them from the fall in the Garden of Eden to full restitution between God and man. Jesus lived His own teaching and prayed for them that were crucifying Him. We read in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, Him teaching, The people I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. We can't say of Jesus that he was a hypocrite. He practiced what he preached. We also are to love our enemies. To pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us. We know, of course, that they're not really the enemy. We get angry at people sometimes for things that they say, things that they do, especially when it seems that they're intentionally malicious against us. But we're not really mad at the people, are we? We're mad at the spirit behind. That's what we ought to be angry at. The people are their pawns. That's all they are. They're pawns. And they don't even know it. Jesus showed more concern for others than Himself. Certainly His whole, his whole existence here on earth. Luke twenty-two fifty and 51 we read, And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And He touched his ear and healed him. They were coming to arrest Him, to take Him away to be crucified. Unjustly, He's an innocent man. But he still took time out to heal the one that was sent here to arrest him. Luke twenty three twenty eight. Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus looking into the future saw what was coming, saw what was going to take place. And His concern and His mercy and His compassion reached out to them. <clears throat> the next phrase we see is, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke 23 and 43. We see yet again how powerfully 
and how swiftly God responds to faith. We see a couple examples, we see several examples for sure, but a couple that we'll talk about uh, previous to this is the centurion and the Canaanitish woman. How Jesus responds to faith. The story of the centurion, we understand he was a, a Roman. He was a Gentile. We read about this account in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. A typical Jesus response. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come. And he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, No, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Referring to the Gentiles. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus saith unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And a servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Jesus responds to faith. He gravitates toward it. He can't help it. There's a scripture where Jesus is speaking. I can't remember the full context now, but it concludes, when I come again, will I find faith on the earth? I pray He does. I pray He finds it here in the cross. Matthew fifteen twenty one through 28 we find the account of the Canaanitish woman. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto Him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But He answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. I understand. Jesus wasn't sent to her. He's going to make that point in a moment. He was sent to his people. He was sent to Israel. This woman has no promise. This woman has no covenant. No relation. No relationship at all. Just hope in the mercy of this God. Verse 24, we continue. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. That would have settled it for most of us, probably. Obviously, the answer is no. She wouldn't take that answer. 
She persisted. She said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour again. We see how that God responds to great faith. God responds to it. He's drawn to it. He's looking for it. The next phrase we read is, Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. John 19, 26 and 27. We see at this point, Jesus had already cared for his enemies and a new convert. Now he turns and he sets his own house in order. Now the portrayal that we we see from John as he goes through the account, we don't see a man suffering uncontrollably if we would stop and take time to detail the the physiological effects of a crucifixion. There are people that have done that. Uh, You can look at them. It's horrific. It's, It's unimaginable. The physiological effects on the body, the pain that's suffered, the, the, the agony, the torment that he endured for six hours. But yet, when we read John's account of the crucifixion, we see a man who is in complete control of his faculties. He's in control of the situation from the very beginning to the very end. He's still Lord. And He's still God, even hanging on the cross. And He is here in this part of the crucifixion, setting His house in order. We see here, Jesus again focusing on the needs of others, completely ignoring His own suffering. What an example to us that we too need you from time to time Ignore our legitimate needs, our real and legitimate needs to be able to minister to somebody else. That's scriptural, that's biblical, that's Christ-like. And we also see here that Jesus is concerned with our legitimate natural needs as well as our spiritual. God did make provision for the healing of our bodies and the healing of our souls. He promises that He'll provide our daily bread, both physical and spiritual. He's concerned about our our legitimate natural needs as well. And that the responsibilities we have in this world do need to be taken care of. Amen. Amen. The next thing that we read him saying is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27 and 46 and Mark 15 and 34. Now at this point, it's now hours later into the crucifixion than the first three sayings. This phrase here is known by theologians as the cry of dereliction. And we understand that he's quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. 
Now, there have been various explanations offered. I'm not really sure why. Because some of these explanations are ludicrous. A statement of disappointment that God did not deliver him. We can kick that to the curb. A citation of the whole psalm with its triumphal ending being intended? Maybe. Here's the one I've settled on. An expression of separation from God because he was bearing the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 states, For he hath made him to be sin. He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. First Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body, on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. At this point of the crucifixion, every sin that had ever been committed, every sin that would ever be committed, was placed on Jesus Christ, when he hung naked, he hung naked on a cross. And because God cannot dwell where sin is, he was at this point separated. Can you imagine the horror? The absolute horror that must have been experienced on the cross at that point in time. A perfect, sinless man who at this point became sin for us. And was now separated from God. He did that for us. He did that for me. Because I needed it. Because I couldn't do it myself. God became sin in our stead that He might bear the full weight of His wrath against sin upon Himself. This Scripture can only be understood in light of New Testament salvation. If you understand that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system, we can begin to understand what this, this Scripture is referring to. How that a just and a holy and a righteous God had to punish sin. It had to be answered. There needs to be a there needs to be an answer to sin. It needs to be punished. The justice and the righteousness of God have to be satisfied. But the mercy of God, the love of God said, I'll satisfy. 
myself. I'll bear the wrath of it myself. And so it can be said that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just. Because His justice was satisfied on the cross. He paid the punishment for our sins Himself. The next scripture we read is, I thirst. John 19 and 28. We read at the beginning of the crucifixion that He was offered a mixture, a drugged wine that would have deadened His pain. And He refused it. Again, We find this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, and Mark 15, verse 23. Again, Jesus is in complete control of His faculties from the beginning to the end. He's in charge of this crucifixion. Make no mistake. He's in charge here. It's by His will that He's on the cross. And when everything is taken care of, It's going to be done. Not before and not after, but when He says. He's in charge here. He refused the drug wine. He would not allow the pain to be deadened. The statement, I thirst, is perhaps where we see the humanity of Jesus most starkly revealed. I can imagine by this point, this is toward the end of the crucifixion. He's bled out. He's dehydrated. He's weak. One can only imagine. Psalm 22 and 15 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Psalm 69 and 21 says, They gave me also gall for my meat. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This drink would serve Jesus to sharpen his senses, to give him a bit of strength. Because he had a couple more declarations to make. John 19 and 30, we read him stating, It is finished. In the Greek, this is a single word. And it's possible that part of the meaning of this phrase is that Jesus is expressing maybe some relief that the suffering is about to end. But the much greater context, though, is that God's plan of restoration, this long process that we've been in, since God first killed some animals to clothe Adam and Eve. When blood was first shed to cover sin. 
and from then on down through the ages, instituting various processes whereby we could approach unto a holy and a righteous God. But not completely, not truly. Because the gulf of sin was still there. Even in the Old Testament Mosaic Law, when the priest was able to approach, when Moses was able to approach during his lifetime, he could approach to a point. But the barrier of sin was still present. It was rolled forward year after year after year, but it was never truly paid for. It was always there. The debt was always there. Until Calvary. The fullness of God's plan of salvation had finally come to fruition. The realization of true salvation, true restitution to a holy and a righteous God, God had finally realized it. It had finally come to reality. It was always in the mind of God from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, that this was to come. But now with this phrase, it is finished. It was declared done. It was declared realized. It was declared perfect. It had happened. The price had finally been paid. Our sin had finally been removed. And now we could truly approach a holy and a righteous God. The temple veil was rent in twain. We now had free access to this righteous, this holy, this perfect God. There was no more barrier of sin. We were free. We were delivered. We were saved. Praise God. He declares once and for all, it is finished. Not before and not after, but right now. Jesus declares, it is finished. He was in charge. He knew when the price had been paid. He hung on there until it was. He suffered everything He needed to suffer until it was. And at this point, it was. Hebrews 10, 11-14 states this, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. All the sacrifices in all of Old Testament history were not sufficient to take care of one sin. Not one. But this man sacrificed himself one time. And it was forever sufficient to take care of every sin. 
that had ever been committed, every sin that will ever be committed. It was forever and altogether sufficient. Praise God. This was His whole reason for being in the world. His whole reason for existing. His whole reason for wrapping Himself in flesh and coming and living amongst us as a man was for this moment here. Indeed, when we look through all of, all of Scripture, all of history, everything led up to this one moment. All the prophecies, all the types and shadows, the covering of Adam and Eve in, in, in animal skins, the ark as a type of salvation, the flood, the Old Testament tabernacle plan. Everything was a demonstration to us of what was to come. Everything was leading up. Everything was leading up to this one moment. This was the focus of all of history. This one statement sums it up. This one Greek word, it is finished. The last statement he makes, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23 and 46. This is perhaps the loud cry recorded in Matthew 27:50, which says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And also in Mark 15:37, it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Jesus is quoting Psalm 31.5 here, saying, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Again, Jesus remains in complete control until the very end. Not allowing Himself to perish until He's good and ready. Until the price had been paid. Until His mission was complete. And when it was, he gave up the ghost. He laid down his life. It was impossible that somebody would have been able to actually kill him. The God of life. He had to voluntarily lay it down himself. And that's exactly what he did. In the fullness of time, when the price had been paid, when everything was complete, his mission was done. He yielded up the ghost. He laid His life down voluntarily for us. He declares at one point, don't you think if I just pray to God, He wouldn't send legions of angels to come to my aid. He had the power to take Himself off the cross anytime He wanted. He could have put an end to it right here and now. He wasn't held there. He chose to be there. For you and for me, He chose to be there. All the events leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus being arrested. <laughs> the, the trial. 
you want to call it that. He didn't say a word. He didn't defend himself. He went willingly. In the garden, when they went to arrest him, they were bowled over. Just a little demonstration. If I wanted to, you wouldn't be able to. The only reason you're able to is because I'm choosing to go. God's in charge. He's always been in charge. And He always will be. In your own life. When you got crazy all over the place. You're in the middle of a storm and you, you can't see your way out. You can't see how... How am I going to make it to tomorrow? God's in charge of that. It may not seem like it. It may not look like it at the moment. It didn't look like it when He was on a cross. The disciples, I'm sure, were a little bit... What? How is this going to work out? But he was still in charge. It was all according to God's plan. And when you're when you got crazy in your life, it may be that's according to God's plan. Let God be in charge of that. Let God be in charge of you. Let God lead you. Don't think for one second that God has lost control, that he's forgotten about you. That somehow this is, this is beyond Him. That He stepped away for a little bit. He'll be back later. Don't let yourself believe that for one second. If anything, God's all the closer. Don't walk by feeling. Don't walk by sight. Walk by faith. Stand on Scripture. Stand on promise. The Word of God tells us. It declares to us that He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's always right there. He may seem a million miles away. I'll grant you that. When your prayers, as they say, bounces off and comes right back down, the heavens seem like they're brass. God seems a million miles away. I can't feel God. I can't hear God. I get it that's frustrating, but it's also completely irrelevant. Because my Bible says that that's not true. And who am I going to stand on? Who am I going to believe? i got to make a choice. Truth is still truth. It's still true. God is still here. When the Scripture tells me that He hasn't forsaken me, that's true. I don't care what I'm feeling. I don't care how the enemy is trying to dilute that truth. It's still true. God's still in control. God's still in charge. This world, it seems like it's falling apart at the seams. And it probably is. But that doesn't mean that God has stepped off the throne. God is still very much on the throne. And He's in control of everything going on out there. This president we have, he's ordained by God. Whether you voted for him or not, whether you agree with him or not, he's the President of the United States. 
And He's there because of the will and plan of God. You don't have to like Him. You don't have to agree with Him. Submit yourself to God. God's in charge. Gas will be... Gas can be six, seven dollars a gallon. It doesn't matter. God can make up the difference for me. I'm always going to be provided for. God will take care of His people if we trust in Him. If we take care of His business, He's going to take care of our business. We don't have to worry about stuff like that. Be prudent. Be a good steward of your finances. Absolutely. But after that, God will make up the lack. Because God's in charge. God's Word is true. So they took Him by the will and plan of God. They tried Him by the will and plan of God. He was going to be freed. God couldn't have that happen. That wasn't part of His plan. Pilate wanted to free him. Scourge him and let him go. He's innocent. His wife had a dream. Don't have anything to do with this just man. But he had to go to the cross. That was the plan. That was the will of God. It may be. And it certainly may seem like it sometimes. That the will and plan for my life seems to be going through some kind of crazy. Some kind of... I'm not even going to compare it to a cross. But some kind of test. Some kind of trial. Some kind of hard path. If that is God's will and plan for you or for me, so be it. Do we trust Him or not? Are we going to follow Jesus even when it goes through a a rough area? Even when it leads through the valley of the shadow of death? Will we start to fear the evil? Or will we trust in God? His rod and His staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. This entire process, this entire from from arrest to resurrection. This was all part of the will and plan of God. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, let this pass from me. I don't think it's wrong for us to pray a similar prayer as long as we follow through with the prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. If it's possible, I'd, I would prefer an easier route here, God. I would prefer a, a, a quicker, straighter route, please. 
But if that's not your will, if that's not your plan, I just want that. I want your plan. I want your path. I followed my path for a long time. I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> it's, a, it's a trail of desolation, of destruction, of, of shipwreck. I'm going to try God's way. God's way works a whole lot better. Amen. In conclusion, in the Bible we have, well, in the Bible we have about 4,000 years. We have 6,000 years of man's history from Adam and Eve to you and me. 6,000 years. 6,000 years of God's progressive revelation of truth. Losing of truth. Reintroduction of truth. (laughs) Church history is basically a study of that. The full revelation of truth. The losing of truth. The restoration of truth. 6,000 years of God's dealing with mankind. Working with Him. Wooing Him. Leading Him to a place of repentance. Leading us back to our original state. We were created perfect. We were created without sin. We were created perfectly able to do everything God wanted us to do. And then we fell. And we became broken. And corrupt and degenerate, and entirely unable to fulfill the plan of God. Unable to have a relationship with God. Unable to commune with a holy and a righteous God. Four thousand years of trying to bring us back from that state to a place where we could once again truly commune with Him truly have a relationship with Him. 2,000 years ago, from our perspective, God came in the form of a man and fixed it. He fixed it once and for all. He fixed our great error. It is finished. Now and forever. God's plan is God's plan was perfect. It took a long time to realize from our perspective. But it was perfect. The gradual and persistent revelation of truth from Adam and Eve to Jesus Christ. If you take the Old Testament, I'm sorry, if you take the Mosaic Law, period of time and you look at it in a vacuum it seems well maybe that's just from my perspective i can't i can't not look at it from my perspective i can't i think i've said this here before i used to before i got the holy ghost i i had a long time 
trying to get to the place where God could fill me with the Holy Ghost. That was on me, by the way. <clears throat> but I thought it would have been nice to, to be able to live under the Old Testament law where I wouldn't have to worry about receiving the Holy Ghost because this seems so hard. And I'd rather climb Mount Sinai than have to... I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong here. Well, once I... Once I Got it, it was a piece of cake. <laughs> oh, that's what I'm doing wrong. It was, it was rebellion. God told me to do something and I didn't want to do it. So, in any case, once I did that, immediately I got filled with the Holy Ghost. Coincidence probably, right? No. Anyway, so <laughs> I would look at the Old Testament law all they had to do was bring a lamb and a bullock, and, and they were good. They were good. Climb Mount Sinai, you know, do all of these things. And I thought that, was, that would have been preferable, because this is really difficult. But having come from that place through a few things to where I'm at today, I can't even imagine thinking like that knowing what, what is revealed to us in this dispensation, the relationship that we have with God in this dispensation. I didn't realize any of that back then. What this means. What the New Testament means. What Calvary means. I mean, you, you could go on and on and on and on about everything that Calvary did for us. Everything that, that God provides for us through Calvary. It is absolutely amazing. The difference between the tabernacle and our experience today. It really is a night and day difference. The high priest approaching one time a year versus I can approach Anytime I want, anytime I need, God is right there. In fact, He's right here. He's inside me. This is the tabernacle now. This is the Holy of Holies now. Can you imagine that? Do you think Moses had any idea what was coming? The prophets. Do you think they had any idea what this would mean? They couldn't have. They couldn't have understood. Not like you and I do. Not like has been revealed to us. The fullness of the revelation of who God is and His plan for us is absolutely mind-blowing. 2,000 years ago He came and he, he completed it. He finished the work. He fixed it. And now today... You and I have the hope of everlasting life because He came and He suffered on a cross and He died for us. We have the promise, we have the hope of everlasting life with Him. Not just blessing in this life. And that's all a part of it. God provides our needs. He forgives our sins. He heals our bodies, our minds. He restores our relationships. He restores our relationship with Him. 
He provides so many good things in this life. But afterward, we have an eternity to spend with Him. Wow, 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 wow. That's all I can say other than thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you did for me. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful, so thankful, so very thankful for what you did for us at Calvary. Help us to understand as much as we, we, we possibly can everything that you did for us so that we can thank you, so that we can worship you, so that we can praise you for every single thing that you've done for us. I'm looking forward to spending eternity thanking you, spending eternity worshiping you for your goodness and for your greatness and for all that you've done and for who you are. Hallelujah, Jesus. I look forward to spending eternity with the one who died for me, the one who took my just place in punishment, who paid the just punishment of my sins himself. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you. Bless the remainder of our service, I pray. Anoint your servant to preach and to teach with boldness and with great authority. Help us to receive the the word of God and to do it. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Uh, We'll be back at a quarter till.